This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. Gender identity in clinical research is drawing increasing and overdue attention because of its direct relevance to health equity. Actions to increase the diversity of patients who participate in clinical research initially addressed racial and ethnic demographics, but the scope is now expanding to address gender identity as well. The reality is that no one really knows how many members of the transgender and non-binary community participate in clinical research because very few researchers ask, and consequently very few patients tell. Some trans and non-binary people are omitted from clinical trials due to a lack of data on how gender-affirming hormone therapy affects trans and non-binary patients and how those may interact with clinical trial medicines. There's also a lack of knowledge by medical professionals and healthcare providers, most of whom have received no training in this area and may not even understand the meaning of the word transgender. I am Chris M. Slowecki, Senior Digital Copy Editor for DIA. Today we welcome Liam Paschal. Liam serves as an Associate Director at Paracel and is a board member of TransCan Work, an organization committed to advancing workplace inclusion through innovative training strategies and workforce development. Liam is also a DEIBA thought leader. DEIBA stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Belonging, and Accessibility. He is a 2022 LinkedIn Top 10 LGBTQIA plus voice and a DEIBA consultant. Liam is here today to take us beyond the presentation that he delivered at our global annual meeting 2022 in Chicago. That presentation was titled Improving Access to and Experiences of Transgender and Non-Binary Patients in Clinical Research. Liam, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. So effective communication starts really and depends on shared, commonly understood terminology and definitions. So it's a great place to begin this conversation. Let's ask you to begin by explaining or defining these terms. And I'll just read them off to you. Okay, Liam? Okay. The first term is sex assigned at birth. So sex assigned at birth is, is really a label, male or female, that you're given when you're born based on medical factors like your hormones, chromosomes, and genitals. Sexual orientation. This is interesting because different people sometimes see this in different ways, but it's really broken down into sexual attraction to a group of people or genders, if at all. And then there's also romantic and emotional attraction to a group of people or genders, if at all. Gender identity. That is one's internal sense of being male, female, neither, both, or another gender. If you think about how you, in your head, think about yourself, that's the chemistry that composes you and how you interpret really what that means. When I say other genders, that's really included to indicate the many, many genders that other people might identify with or express themselves as and be attracted to. It's psychological sense of self. And then that leads nicely into the next term, which is gender expression. This is one that people, I think, understand the most. It's how you look and express yourself through 
how you dress, your hairstyles, your nonverbal mannerisms, maybe the way you walk, grooming, and other things that we see on the outside. Because of societal norms, we have a tendency to look at certain items of clothing and the way that people style their hair, the jewelry they wear, whether they wear makeup or not, to determine whether that person is more masculine or feminine. And that is not always the case. That is where we need to stop labeling things and people. Transgender. Transgender is exactly how I describe myself. It's a person whose current gender identity is different from the sex they were assigned at birth. So for me, I am a transgender man. There are two acronyms that sort of go along uh, with the transgender terminology, as well as the the next term that we're probably going to discuss. And that's AFAB, assigned female at birth, and AMAB, assigned male at birth. So I'm an AFAB transgender man. And then the final one, sir, is non-binary. Non-binary is an umbrella term for gender identities that are not solely male or female. They're identities that are outside of what we consider to be the gender binary. So the majority of people listening to this podcast, most of DIA community members are involved in clinical research or regulatory review and approval of patient access. So from a scientific, from a medical perspective. Mm -hmm. Why is trans-inclusive clinical research important? Including trans people in clinical research is something that we need not, not only to decrease discrimination, but really to improve current treatments for everyone, for all people. There's a, a significant disparity in the quality and the quantity of research that's done, particularly on trans healthcare. And this is compounded by the various intersections of marginalized people within the trans community. So you think about intersectionality. Further research can only help us to better understand the differences in our bodies and illnesses and how combinations of certain medications and existing treatments can improve everyone's lives. This will not only help transgender people, it's also going to teach us about how the human body works. You know, one thing that I tell people sometimes when they ask me, how is your transition impacting your health? Because someone's transition is their own, right? It's unique to them. They can choose to to transition medically, socially, legally, a combination of the two, none of the three. It's really up to the individual. And because I have chosen to transition medically, socially, and legally, I get a lot of questions around uh, how maybe some of the medicine that I'm taking is impacting my body. And I have, I've been diagnosed with polycythemia. Okay, thank you. And so we don't know really and truly if that is just something that I've developed just because or if it's related to the gender affirming hormones that I'm taking. So those types of things, if we can really make sure that we're involving the trans community in clinical research, we can start to figure out some of these things and really help, again, not just trans people, but all people. I had the privilege, as I mentioned, of sitting in your session at our annual meeting in Chicago. And in that session, you cited data that nearly half of transgender respondents experienced mistreatment or discrimination from a healthcare provider. Could we ask you to share what forms this discrimination or mistreatment often takes? And then, Liam, if I could follow it up, have you yourself ever personally witnessed or unfortunately, perhaps even experience this yourself. Let's talk about the forms 
of discrimination and mistreatment first. I think one is being denied care. That happens all too often. Someone will be denied care simply because either a medical provider doesn't understand how to treat trans patients, or maybe they don't even want to. So it's a matter of discrimination and, and just having a closed mind when it comes to the trans community. And that, of course, brings on you know negativity, harassment, disrespect, and just treating people in, a, in an inappropriate manner that makes them just refuse to even try to access health care any further, let alone clinical trials. We often get asked inappropriate and unnecessary questions about our sexuality, our sexual orientation, our bodies, our relationships, questions that have nothing to do with what we are there to see a doctor for. Being misgendered, the staff not asking about our pronouns, our chosen names. So using our birth name, or we refer to it actually as dead name rather than our chosen names, and just being denied routine health screenings, fertility treatments, counseling, even pediatric care for children. I will tell you nearly half of trans adults do report, like you said, being mistreated, being discriminated against. I had a friend recently who went to see an endocrinologist and the endocrinologist made inappropriate comments about testosterone and its effect on that patient's genitalia. Like it was almost like a laughing matter. I've had people tell me they've been to the ER and the doctor who has assumed basically that they were there drug seeking or that they were an addicted sex worker because they identified as trans and they refused them care. We've had general practitioners who have refused to see a trans patient because trans patients are quote unquote too difficult. And basically they tell the patient, well, no one else at this clinic is going to see you either. And for me, I've dealt with it quite a bit, maybe not as much as others, but I have a an experience that I, I recently had a few months ago. I had to have a, a standard procedure. It was in the it was in the OR. And I had asked my primary care doctor to refer me to someone in their network that had treated trans patients in the past. They were comfortable talking with and caring for trans patients. And she referred me to someone. And on the morning that I got up to go to the facility, I get there and I'm waiting back there in, in the waiting room for the surgeon to come in to talk to me. Now, she's taken time to review my medical chart, my digital medical records. So she sees everything about me, my gender identity, my sex assigned at birth, my pronouns, my name, everything. But I want to make sure that when she comes in, there's no way that she's going to slip up and say the wrong thing, nor is anyone that's in the operating room with her. So she sits down, she welcomes me, she starts to tell me about the procedure. And I said, listen, I just want to make sure, I know you've seen my records, but I'm a trans man. I have transitioned medically, socially, and legally, but I have, I have not had any surgery below the waist. And I wanted her to know this. I said, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I want you to be aware of that before we go back to the operating room. She said she understands, she's going to share it with her team. They come to get me. Walk me back to the operating room. I'm in this gown. And if you've ever been in one of those things before, you know, it's already embarrassing as it is. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. They put me on the table and I think, okay, I'm in good hands. This is someone in my own primary care doctor's network. I've told them about the fact that I'm a transgender man. Everything's good. So they lay me down on the table. At this point, the gown comes off. They're covering me up with blankets. I'm just about to get the anesthesia. The nurse who is standing behind me starts to refer to me with she pronouns. 
And unless you're a trans person, there's no way to describe how that feels in that moment. And even after that happens, long after that happens, it is something that we refer to as gender dysphoria. When something happens like this, it makes us feel like we're not seen, we're not respected, we're not valued, we're not heard. And that wherever we are, that that's happening is a place we do not want to be. And for me, I am terrified. I'm laying on this table with a surgeon, a nurse, and an anesthesiologist. I'm scared to death already because I'm about to go under. And no matter how minor the procedure, you're still terrified. And I ask myself, do I say something now or do I wait and say something later? No patient should ever have to ask themselves that question. And I decided in that moment that I was just going to be quiet as they continued to use the wrong pronouns because I was deathly afraid that if I said something and it happened to offend the person who had already offended me, that something would happen to me while I was under anesthesia. And nobody, nobody should ever have to go through that. Your presentation included an overview of practical considerations for transgender patients participating in clinical research. These practical things include insurance coverage, adding clinical trial participation to their existing healthcare treatments. Could you please explain and describe some of these considerations from the transgender patient perspective? One thing that, that is important to note that just about any trans person will tell you is there is a tremendous lack of trust in the medical profession and the pharma industry for various reasons. The least of them being that from our experience, many are not educated in providing the appropriate care that we need or even talking to us in such a way that feels inclusive. This is due to a lack of providers with expertise in transgender medicine. It's not taught in conventional medical curricula. Very, very few physicians have the knowledge and or comfort level to provide appropriate care for the trans community. So we have a hard time finding physicians who specialize in trans medicine and trans care. I remember when I first started in my transition and I, I was trying to figure out, okay, who do I see for this and where do I start? And it varies by state and by country. But, you know, for me, it was having to find a therapist, someone I could talk to, because you have to have various letters in order to do certain things like have gender affirming top surgery. And so it was, it was a combination of the stress of trying to get everything done and the hoops that I had to jump through. But the biggest part was trying to go online and or talk to people in the community to figure out who do I need to see that I don't have to educate on how they need to be treating me. Often we have to do that. We'll, we'll see a physician, a dermatologist, whomever it may be. And, and a lot of times we have to educate them. And it's sometimes if you do find them, it's hard to get in with them. I'm trying to have a procedure right now that will hopefully, what I consider to be, will sort of finalize my medical transition. And I have reached out to, I know, at least 20 different surgeons in various locations in the state that I live in and some outside of the state that I live in. And either A, they're, they're just not willing to take any new patients right now, or B, they're booking out in 2024. They're not even seeing anybody in 2023 because they're so busy. Finding those physicians that actually can give us the appropriate care. And then another one is being uninsured or underinsured. 
So in addition to having lower rates of insurance compared with cisgender people, and that's a term I probably need to to, uh, provide a description for. So cisgender, it's a person whose current gender identity corresponds to the sex they were assigned at birth. Sometimes it's it's shortened to cis. But we in the trans community, we we do have a, a hard time in terms of getting either appropriate insurance or having insurance at all that covers anything that we need to have done. So there's challenges with the public and private insurers that deny coverage for gender-affirming care. So sometimes we have huge out-of-pocket costs. It's nothing to see on social media, trans youth and trans adults creating different websites to raise money, like a GoFundMe, so that they can have a specific procedure. And it's either, you know, we can't afford insurance, the insurance provider or company, if we're working, the insurance provider or company uses doesn't offer that coverage or they have limited coverage. And so then trans people who lack access to this insurance coverage or don't have adequate coverage, they don't know what to do. And especially trans people of color, those and those from lower income backgrounds, those who are homeless, they don't have the financial resources or the support they need to receive care. And so for those who need Gender affirming hormones uh, like hormone replacement therapy, estrogen, testosterone, for example, they sometimes have to return to these riskier sources or forego medications altogether. And that, of course, increases their risk for negative health outcomes and can be a very, very serious impact on mental health. Another thing I would say that is huge for us is site infrastructure. What do I mean by that? That is something we have to have to feel safe. So gender neutral or gender inclusive or all gender facilities, we want to be able to use the restrooms, obviously, that correspond to our gender identity. But it's not safe to do that in most places, including medical sites. I think I shared at DIA that I am terrified when I'm out in public to stop and go to a men's restroom. So terrified that sometimes I literally will just wait if I can until I get home or I can find a gender neutral restroom. So we need that as a start as part of the site infrastructure. All inclusive or gender neutral facilities provide a safe space for everyone, not just the trans community. This includes restrooms, showers, locker rooms, changing rooms that anybody can use. And the best option is really to provide a single stall, a restroom constructed with you know traditional walls to provide the most privacy. And that is something that all medical facilities should have. They don't, for the most part, if a transgender male goes into a men's restroom, there's a lot that weighs very heavy on their minds. One is as soon as you're standing at the door, you wonder, is there someone else in the restroom? If there is someone else in the restroom, are they standing at a urinal? Are they in a stall? If I walk in, is this person going to assume that I'm a cisgender male or a transgender male? Are they going to assume that I'm a cisgender female? If I don't stand at a urinal and I go to a stall instead, are they going to wonder why I'm doing that? Are they going to listen to me and see that there's a difference in the sound of me urinating versus them urinating? Are they going to see the difference in the direction of my feet? And so these are things that we think about. And and when you're sitting in a stall, whether you're in a medical facility or anywhere else, a public restroom, and I'm in that restroom for men, if I know someone's in that restroom, I will wait until they leave the restroom to come out of the stall because I am deathly afraid that if I open that stall door, someone is going to punch me in the face. I get beat up, harassed, 
shot. I just don't know. And all these thoughts go through my mind. And no one that just wants to use the restroom should ever have to deal with that. No one, especially when you're thinking about being included in some type of clinical trial or you're trying to see a medical doctor to get treated for something. That's the last thing you want to think about. You're supposed to be in a safe environment. Liam, thank you. I really appreciate your transparency there and your vulnerability with us. Thank you for sharing that. During the 2022 legislative session, dozens of states in the United States have considered or will consider legislation related to transgender discrimination. Could we ask you to briefly summarize, if not some of these legislations, some of the anticipated impact of these legislations on clinical research in this community? Now, this is a topic that I um, think about a lot and that I talk about a lot and one that definitely gets me sometimes very emotional because, you know, I think back to 2018 and I think the, the numbers I looked at this morning from the Washington Post, there were 19 bills that were introduced in 2018 as opposed to 155 bills this year alone. The last data that I looked at showed an estimated I think 1.2 million non-binary adults and 1.4 million transgender adults just in the U.S. Now, these numbers, they're obviously higher because a lot of this information doesn't get reported. People don't report this type of information. And both communities, non-binary and transgender, are very underrepresented in clinical trials. Patients who mistrust the healthcare system are typically very apprehensive about clinical research as well because you're still dealing with that medical community. The anti-trans legislation that is sweeping across the U.S. at just alarming rates is only going to cause our community to forego necessary care, including and especially gender-affirming care, and yes, clinical trials, because we don't see them as beneficial or necessary. We already have so many medical appointments, some of us more than others, just for myself alone, I have my primary care doctor, my endocrinologist, my hematologist, my plastic surgeon, my therapist. I think that's it for now. I'm constantly having to get lab work done at least once every three months. I'm having to get blood because of the polycythemia that I have. And when you consider the bills that are being introduced, the laws that are being passed, our mental health is suffering a great deal. Because we're in fear for not only our rights being taken away, but we're in fear for our lives. So that's going to impact the medical community at large because we're not going to seek out care. And we're certainly not going to put ourselves in a place where we feel like we could possibly be in an unsafe environment or we're not going to be treated with respect and the compassionate care we deserve in going through a clinical trial. There's nothing for us without us. And clinical trials in this context they're not for us or about us. So why are we going to put ourselves in harm's way to participate? Think about long ago, you had women that had what's called the back alley abortions and they put their lives in danger. We're going to see an increase in the trans community trying to get their medications, their treatment through riskier sources, or they're going to stop getting the medications that they need, like their gender affirming hormones altogether, which again is going to increase their risk for negative health outcomes and really impact their mental health. And this, this doesn't even touch on how this is impacting our trans and non-binary youth in the U.S. So it's, it's definitely going to impact the medical community at large, but it will have a significant impact 
on clinical trials and we're already not either participating or the data is not being accurately collected. What can clinical trial sponsors, what can CROs, what can site personnel do to make clinical research more inclusive, accessible, and friendly to the transgender and non-binary community? Well, it's got to start with proper training, first of all. A friend of mine, I was recently talking to them, and one of the things they said was, you know, it's just basic training on trans healthcare and anti-discrimination at the very least, which is true. And medical providers, they, they should be receiving training in medical school, at least foundational training, and they're not. I talked to my, uh, my son. He's in nursing school. And I asked him, are they teaching anything about trans healthcare? Are they teaching anything about how to work with trans and non-binary patients? And he said, no, they're not. And that training has to go beyond medical school. We cannot continue to educate site staff. We cannot continue to educate doctors and nurses. We will if we have to. But in the case of a clinical trial, we, we don't feel like we should have to. We want forms that are gender neutral and list multiple options for gender identity. Don't just continue to ask about sex assigned at birth or biological sex. Give us an option to add our gender identity to the form, including the right not to disclose. Maybe we don't want to tell you that information. Something simple that people sometimes make so difficult. Use the right pronouns. How do you do that? Let's start with putting pronouns on the name tags of site staff. Offer name tags for study participants that include their pronouns if they wish to add them there. Or give them a place to write it in on the name tag. Ask someone when they come in, my name is, and I'm just going to give you an example. My name is John. My pronouns are he, him, his. Liam, I want to thank you for being here today with us. Can you tell me if this is your chosen name or if I should call you something else? And by the way, if you don't mind sharing, what pronouns do you use? It's that simple. Clinical spaces that are gender neutral, those gender neutral restrooms that I talked about, the showers, making sure that we see representation around us. So pictures on the wall that are representative of who we are. If we see other people like us in the brochures, the pictures, mission statements that are clearly visible, maybe including the flags that represent the transgender community and other images that will say to us, this is a safe space for you. We respect you. We care about you. We want to take care of you. And we're here for you. We need to see that. We need to make sure that there's diverse site staff representative of the patient population. I would love to be able to go and say, okay, this doctor is a transgender or a non-binary doctor, because then I know that person knows about my lived experiences. They know something about what I've been through, what I'm going through, how to best treat me, how to talk to me. But at the very least, if we can't do that, making sure the site staff is informed, they're trained, they've reviewed our charts, our medical history before they're interacting with us. And I don't know why this is something that I feel like we're not focusing on, but it's not. We need more patient advocates. I see a lot of information, a lot of articles online about the oncology and cancer research having so many patient advocates that are working with patients. We want patient advocates to work with the trans and gender diverse clients to navigate the health system in ways that respect our connection to affirming care. There's not a lot of that right now. Very seldom do I see anything about patient advocates for the trans community. It's important that 
everyone realizes that every single person, trans or non-binary, is unique. And their transition journey is also unique. Some people transition medically, socially, legally, some a combination of these, some none of these ways. Each person's journey is their own, and there is no one-size-fits-all approach in medical care or in clinical trials. So how, how then does site staff hope to be inclusive when they're wanting us to participate in a clinical trial? It's by doing all of these things and keeping an open mind and an open heart. And if you don't know the answer to something or you're just not sure what a particular term is, it's perfectly okay to ask. There's nothing I love more than for a medical provider that maybe that I'm meeting for the first time to very respectfully say, could you tell me a little bit more about what this term means? I'm not familiar and I want to learn. That is what we need in medical care and clinical trials. If we want to have more participation, we have to feel like we're included. We have to feel like we belong and we have to feel like people see us for who we are. Liam, before I let you go today, Let's help these people out a little bit. What organizations or resources are available that can help move these types of changes forward, not only in clinical research for these communities, but to help bring about more health equity in general? I think one big one is community involvement. And what I mean by that is, if you have a clinical trial that you're running in a certain area, do a Google search. Look for LGBTQ plus or trans organizations in that area. Most of them are nonprofit and reach out to some of these individuals in these communities and start talking to them. Hey, we've got a clinical trial here or whatever the case may be. And we really want to get the trans community more involved. We want them to feel like they belong. We want to include the trans community in the data in our, in our trial so that we can help in any way we can. What do you suggest that we do? Can we partner with you? to help get the trans community more involved. This includes those patient advocates that I talked about, trying to bring in more advocates to work with the trans community. Focus groups with members from the community itself. Who knows more about how to work with us than we do? You know, we don't have a PhD, most of us don't, but we know if you ask us about anything going on with our bodies that have to do with our transition, our mental health, the way that you, you speak with us, that you talk to us, the terms that you use, the terms that you don't use, we know that better than anyone else. Education and ongoing training, I feel like I need to put that on repeat with pharmas, with clinical research organizations, sponsors, doctors, medical site staff. This has to continue well beyond just the foundational knowledge because in our community, things are pretty fluid. And terms change. Some are antiquated yesterday and, and tomorrow they'll be used again. And sometimes they mean one thing and the next day they'll mean something else. And that's not a bad thing. It's just things change. There's the World Professional Association for Transgender Health or called, something called WPATH. They just updated the standards of care for the health of transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people. They're on the eighth version now. They added four new chapters. And for those of you who are listening to this and you might be wondering, well, Liam, what is WPATH? These standards of care are recommendations for both patients and healthcare professionals. They inform on the rights and responsibilities in the diagnostic and treatment process for trans and non-binary individuals. You also have something called NASM, National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. 
Uh, there's a document, a report actually called Measuring Sex, Gender Identity and Sexual Orientation. And they recommend that the National Institutes of Health adopt these new practices that they have put in place in this report for collecting data on sex, gender, sexual orientation, including collecting gender data by default and not conflating gender with sex as a biological variable. This report also recommends standardized language to be used in survey questions that ask about a participant's sex, their gender identity, their sexual orientation. And beyond that, one of the things that people don't realize that they could and should be doing is something as simple as going out on Google and doing a little research. You'd be surprised to see, especially now, just how many articles and surveys and data is being collected and shared around this particular topic, especially with the bills and the laws right now in the U.S. It's becoming quite a topic of interest for a lot of people. In addition to the things I've already shared here, educate yourself and if you know someone who's a trans person, a non-binary person, some people are okay with you asking them questions and, and you know they're willing to share with you some responses to those questions. I'm one of those people. I am an open book and I'm all about trying to help someone learn as long as they are willing to learn and put forth the efforts. So I would say education is key for all of this. Liam, that was our last question. I wanna thank you on behalf of DIA for a thoroughly remarkable, enjoyable, and important conversation today. Thank you for all you do for all of us. I'm hoping I can, can end this with just a, a brief statement here. When we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical trials, it's, it's really important. We're talking about the trans and non-binary community right now, but it's very important to consider the intersectionality of participants as well. Much of the currently available research doesn't consider the intersecting identities and the marginalization that trans people experience. Trans adults, believe it or not, have a higher probability of reporting a disability compared with cisgender men and women. More work needs to be done to analyze the care between trans people of color and white trans people and the risk factors that can be different between them. Transgender people need to be included in clinical research to really decrease discrimination, to improve education, to improve treatment for every person, not just transgender people. When people know better, they're expected to do better. And while it's important that we do continue to have these discussions and I want us to continue to educate each other, it's really time at this point for action. Thank you, Liam. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. For DIA, I am Chris M. Slowacki. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org.